Uh, it's great to be with you this morning, uh, and I always count it a privilege uh, to preach and to bring the next in our series. Uh, it's Labor Weekend. How many of you are uh, in the garden this weekend? Yeah, see, now, this happened in the first service. I looked around, and basically this section was the only ones who were doing something in the garden. My wife's bought uh, tomato plants. Who's planting tomatoes? Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, everyone's... I know nothing about gardening. I'm just pretending here, so... Uh, just ignore that. But uh, I know that I've got a lot of gardening to do because my wife made me dig over something this week. So it's plenty coming. <clears throat> anyway, this morning uh, we're into uh, chapter 12. And, um, you know, some of you have been reading ahead. I know that. And uh, you've been going, yes, I can't wait for chapter 12. And um, I'm really thankful to Craig for giving me another one of those awesome passages to preach from um, this morning. But uh, some of you have been waiting for this passage because, um, yeah, you're, you're hoping that as a pastor, I might affirm some of your long-held biases about uh, the gifts of the Spirit, maybe, uh, or to dignify some of those strongly held conv uh, convictions about what Paul is truly saying in this passage. <clears throat> well, uh, in that regard, I hope I disappoint you today, uh, well, at least some of you, and I hope uh, what comes out of this message is something similar to uh, the one of Paul's own goals for the Corinthian church, and that is a challenging declaration of what the church must look like if it's to become all it's intended for, for that community. Yeah? And you're going, what's that got to do with the gifts? Let's get into it. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we started in, uh, just, just two weeks ago, we started in chapter 11, and this is going to go right through to chapter 14, this talk about worship and, uh, and, and the proper place of worship among us. You see, worship and the way we worship is important to God. Worship and the way we worship is important to God. See, when, when God's people gather to worship, something is activated by the Spirit. Something unique is happening in our midst right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And you're like, um, I'm feeling tired. Um, I'm feeling hungry. No, no, no. It's, it's more than that. It's unique. It binds us together. There is something about you sitting right here this morning that the Spirit has brought us together and is going to do something among us. And so uh, I've called this message, The Spirit and Unity. So I want to dig too far into chapter 12 because there's another whole section next week, which Pastor Craig's going to uh, preach on. But as we open these words this morning, I want to encourage you, be prepared to hear something that you haven't heard before. All right, let's pray. Father, as we gather expectantly, as we come and we allow your spirit to speak into our lives, uh, we, we ask that you would lead us to the things, maybe some biases we have, maybe some untruths that are a part of our life and hand them over to you. Uh, spirit, we, we invite you to come and do that which only you can do in our midst. And Lord, we surrender ourselves to your working and to your purposes this morning. May your word speak and things of man or of this world can drop away, but your word, like the double-edged sword that it is, cut straight to the truth this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to make our way methodically through 
the 11 verses I have been given this morning. And uh, we're not going to skip out the parts, or we're not going to skip to the parts that, that you love, uh, as Paul, he doesn't waste words. And he doesn't waste words because it was really expensive to write these words down in his day, right? So when he's making these scrolls, he's really thought about what he's writing, and he's placed every sentence where it's meant to be. Now, he didn't just sit there and go, oh... Yeah, I think about this and maybe chuck a bit of this in there. No, no, he was, he was working his way through very methodically and writing something that he hoped would transform the church that he's sending it to. And they, these words, they develop context, they give meaning, and they give direction to that which follows. So follow along with me this morning in chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. It reads like this. Now about the gifts of the Spirit... Brothers and sisters, men and women, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by his Spirit. So he begins I think a little bit with a pastoral note, but you know what happens with Paul, right? He, he butters you up and then he gives you one of those, all right? So you're being buttered up at the moment, but he's trying to give you context as well. Now, according to most scholars, okay, and I've read quite a few books on this this week, according to most scholars, the word gifts here is actually translated spiritual things, okay? Ooh, hold up, Rob. Yeah, in the Greek... Okay, as they pull it apart, they realize actually it's spiritual things, spiritual happenings for this particular word. And more than likely, N.T. Wright says, it's, as he puts it, it would be the working of the Spirit in God's people. Now, this sounds a bit nerdy. Rob, you've already dropped that in the Greek um, this morning. It's, it's not my purpose. It's quite simply the, trying to unpack a little bit of the importance of why he's doing this through this passage. Paul's unpacking, remember this, right worship. Okay? From chapter 11 right through to chapter 14, right worship. And in that verse, verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or another, you were influenced or led astray to mute idols. The Corinthians are no longer what or who they used to be before they before the Spirit worked its redemptive activity in them. Okay? Some of them, like you know, uh, people I've met in places like India, they come out of Hinduism and they carry with them all the experience, all of those, those elements of that faith structure, the way that they worship, the sacrifices they need to bring, all of those things, we drag them along. Now, many of us have come out of non-religious backgrounds. Okay? We drag a bunch of that stuff into uh, Christian life, thinking that possibly it's the right thing. Surely it's the right thing. But what he's saying to them is that you must no longer think or act in the ways which you're accustomed to before knowing Christ. Now, a few years ago when I became a Christian, quite a few years ago, uh, in the early 90s, there was this kind of thing that happened where it's like, take all your non-Christian CDs and throw them in the fire. Stupid. Um, some, of us, some of us did it. Craig said earlier that he threw his records in the fire. 
Uh, tapes, maybe. How many of you remember tapes? No one in this section knows what tapes are. Um, right motives, wrong action. Okay? Uh, how many of you still got your Eagle CD with Hotel California on it? Yeah, yeah, see? A few people, ooh, ooh, yeah. do I say yes to that? I don't really want to know. You see, one of the things that was happening is that they remembered places like, if you go back to 1 Kings 18 and there's the prophets of Baal and they're dancing around their, their altar and Elijah's sitting there going, come on guys, you know, make it, make it turn into fire and they're cutting themselves and they're dancing and they're doing all this sort of stuff. And then he just says, Lord, if it be your will, fire, right? Their cultures bring into faith good things and bad things, okay? And so he's talking to that particular aspect. The problem is, is that God can't be conjured. We don't come together and we have nice songs beforehand because we're trying to conjure up God and conjure you up. So one of the things I want to encourage is that we actually come a worshipping to be gathered together. You already started your worship as you come here. Some of you are like, yeah, I started yelling at my kids before I came here. But the, the reality is that's the purpose. We don't come here to conjure God. He is already here in our midst. He is already present by his Holy Spirit among you right now. Spiritual ignorance is being addressed here in this passage. A clear understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of God's people is important, not just to the Corinthians, but to the Bethlehemites. Okay? It's very important. Because in our postmodern Western context, there's this, I guess, dichotomy between the natural and the rational, right? And it still keeps, we still are quite keen to keep the rigid boundaries between those two things. We've talked about it before as being dualism, okay? The spiritual and the physical. Let's keep those things as far apart as possible because we don't actually want them to speak too much to what we're doing. And not so in other cultures around the world. Uh, I remember a few years back walking through a remote village in the middle of Papua New Guinea, way up in the northern part with Deb's, Deb's dad, my father-in-law, and uh, it was really funny. We, well, it's funny to me, but it wasn't funny to the poor children. Um, white men haven't been in some of these villages for years, but they knew we were coming because we were doing ministry in the area. And so Deb's dad and I, we're about a foot taller than most Papua New Guineans. I'm not a tall man, but anyway. Um, and we're significantly more white than them. And what the people would do in those villages is they would tell the children because the children had never seen a white man, they would tell the children, there's some white men coming to the village today. And they're like, what? What's a white man? And they would tell the children that white men love to eat little brown children. And so I could have walked into the, like the sense of the village. I didn't. But I found this out later. And so when John and I walk into the village, you're like, hey, yeah. these guys are like, and then tear off into their, into their houses and all of the adults are just roaring with laughter because they just think, it's, this is hilarious. I mean, the poor children. You'd never do that to your children, would you? Rubbish. So they were terrified because in their culture, the space between the physical world and the spiritual world is very thin in their worldview. Okay? 
we believe that a white man could walk into this village and want to eat children because the parents are telling them that's kind of a spiritual reality and they're like, <gasps> right? There's a very thin line between the physical and the spiritual world. It's the same with us. We just try to push it apart. We try to make the physical world over there and the spiritual world over there and we actually don't want those two things to meet because it's easier for us. We can explain away things that the Spirit's doing over there as being spiritual. Last week, uh, Pastor Craig helpfully unpacked chapter 11. And I, I love the fact that when, in that in that chapter, he's, he's talking about unholy communion, that we actually need to hold on to something that is sacred among us and come rightly to that worship space. Okay, When we come to communion, have you checked your heart? Have you spent some time forgiving or meeting with other people? See, I'm not, I'm not advocating here for a demon under every chair theology, okay? Uh, but our dualistic Western worldview, it's an important thing to try and reclaim regularly the reality that the spiritual and the physical are less separate things than we make them out to be. Far less separate. And that might scare a few people in the room, but it's true. You see, Paul is indicating that the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot be used to appease or, or appeased in the same way that the Corinthians used to. He's saying that actually these things go together and you have to think about this better. Discerning what is and isn't God and what is from the Spirit is the focus. Okay, that's what they're doing. So then, we're, um, so then uh, there is this awkward sentence in, in verse 3 that indicates that you cannot have the Holy Spirit and curse Jesus at the same time. And it speaks to this mute idolatry that's possibly surrounding this pagan influence. Uh, last week in night service, I talked about the light and the dark imagery. They're saying, actually, the things of the light, there is more to this world spiritually than we allow their um, space for. And that is both in terms of what God is doing, the spiritual side of things, and what the enemy is doing inside of the dark, dark side of things. So we need to hold on to those things. But here is an essential truth that will come through and continue to unfold as we go along. And you'll see them in the next few verses. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is love, there is unity. So, let's go on to verses 4 to 6. It reads like this. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Contained within these couple of verses, a very deep Trinitarian theology, which I will not go into this morning. But what he's saying here is there's one God that expresses himself in three ways. Okay, Spirit, Lord being Jesus, and God above. God is at work in all of them. Um, Paul's desire is for a solid theological underpinning for the work of the Spirit that gives reason to their experience. See, what's happening in their community is the Spirit is doing things and they're, and they're hearing people 
um, wrestling in these different tongues. And then there's these miracles happening, and they're, they're thinking, what have they done? Have they, have they given um, some sort of um, sacrifice to make that happen? What's going on? And so he's trying to help them unpack that. And he's giving them the real reason for the experience. You see, what happens in our community when the Spirit breaks out is we love the experience and we're not really sure of the reason. And we've got to hold a tension between those two things. I shared that last Sunday night as well. Reason gives uh, life to experience and experience gives life to reason. You can't have one without the other. Okay? Otherwise, it's just religiosity. And the reason why he's doing this as well is because Corinth was a very philosophically driven society. If you're a smart person and you could verbatim uh, share scripture or you could know mathematics, I mean, those, you know, roll into a party and, yeah, here's my mathematics. Um, but in that society, uh, you, were, you were the man if you could do that. And, and, and Paul knows this. He's saying, actually, you need to break out of that because there's some that are sitting on the resin and some that are sitting in the space of experience. So the appeal to a unified approach to worship was depicted in the Trinity. He's done that on purpose. But one God who is the divine origin. And I suspect his desire is to help them see that in a city like Corinth or Tauranga, uh, that there is a difference between something that's just spiritual and something that is Christian. Mm -hmm. Lots of spiritual things happen. Not all of them are Christian things. Okay? You tracking with me here? <laughs> and I suspect that that is what he's trying to say. In a world that is starved of spirituality, it's easy to suppose that anything which seems to be in touch with something spiritual or supernatural must be from God, but it isn't. N.T. Wright, uh, he's one of my favorite scholars, and he, he says this. He says, The point of being in touch with the things of the Spirit is not in order that we would have exciting experiences, but so that you will be loyal to Jesus, the risen Lord. See, when it comes to things of the Spirit, we kind of lean over and go, that's a really nice experience, but that's not the point. It's not the point of it. And this is where we get to verse 7, which kind of is the center of what we're talking about this morning. It says this, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Common good. Interesting word. If the gifts of the Spirit are not about my exciting experiences, even though God uses them to administer His grace, what does verse 7 tell us? Well, the NIV uh, version translates one word to common good. It's this word here. Sum which means beneficial. Now, we've heard that word a few times in this series, beneficial, haven't we? It's beneficial to all. There's something that comes out of it for those it serves. In chapter 10, we hear these words, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And then I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Paul likes this word, and he uses it a lot through 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. It's an important word. 
because it speaks directly to purpose. See, the manifestation of spiritual gifts are for the church. The church. You are but a conduit for God's grace and love to one another. How how do I know that? Well, you go somewhere like 1 Peter 4 verse 10. He says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. You are a conduit, not a bucket. The Spirit of God flows through you to serve others. doesn't get stored up in here so it's a nice spiritual experience for myself. You are a conduit for God's grace. You see, the context that Paul has in Corinth uh, there, was, there was plenty of well-meaning new believers exercising gifts, but, but creating some sort of class distinctions as well. Those who had certain gifts were far better than those who didn't have certain gifts, which sadly is very much a part of our human nature, isn't it? When it comes to the manifestation of the Spirit, is exactly the opposite of what Paul believes the Spirit does when, it, when we try to bucket it up for ourselves or when we try to create class distinctions between these gifts. You see, the manifestation of the Spirit in you is the spiritual gift for others, not for you. The Holy Spirit equips people to advance His kingdom in the face of principalities and powers of this world, not for your own notoriety. For the benefit of others, gifts not for the possessor, but to be gifted for the benefit and common good of his church, of this community. Conduit, not a bucket. Now that we've cleared it up, let's move on to the four verses you all want to look at. Chapter, verse 8 through to 10. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, interpretation of those tongues. See, I had a great story this week from, uh, from a pastor friend. And he said that when he started a church... He had this bubbly, bright person come up to him and go, Pastor, 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 guess what? I have seven of the spiritual gifts. And he looked at him and said, three more and you'll be Jesus. (laughs) He says this strong belief that we're, we're trying to collect these things. They're not countdown cards that we're trying to collect here. They're a gift given to serve others, okay? Something that is maybe even momentary, maybe a lifetime gift, but the reality is it's that way, not this way. It's a grace through you, not necessarily for you. And there is this very strong belief in the Pentecostal movement um, in a lot of churches that says, basically, you're not a Christian unless you have the, the gift of tongues. What I read Paul's words here is to one or to another, not to all. Okay? What I, what, I, what I heard this week is that someone who was in a church actually got fired from that church 
or moved on. It's a nice way of saying it. But moved on because they didn't have the gift of tongues or didn't use the gift of tongues. We put such a high priority on things that I don't think Paul or even Jesus would have put such a high priority on. And so Paul puts this list together, and I'm sure most of you have seen a list like this, but there's, there's two other lists. One's in Romans 12, as you know, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy, prophecy, serving, teaching. Did you know there was another one? Well, there's another one, Ephesians 4, uh, apostles, evangelism, pastor, prophecy, teacher. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 12, and this is the longest one. But the, the thing is, it doesn't matter how you've got administration. Next one, there we go. It's not about the length or what is in them. Because when I read a lot of the um, commentaries, the commentaries say to us, actually, it's not an exhaustive list. Um, in fact, there could be many more. Uh, many, many more. Now, I don't see on this list or any of those other lists uh, musical skills. Huh? When we, we come together each morning and, and the worship team are leading us, I think that's a gift that serves the community, but it's not on that list. So maybe it's not a spiritual gift. The list isn't important and it's not exhaustive. And most scholars would agree it could be much longer. Maybe Paul is just putting some things out there for us to think about. Paul's point isn't to name every gift, but to highlight diversity in those gifts. You see, the thing is, if the use of spiritual gifts isn't promoting greater unity and love, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's the heart of Paul's message. Spiritual gifts are to promote greater unity and love in God's community. And one of the key emphasis of this whole section from chapter 11 to chapter 14 is to bring this corrective to the course of the church. You're all going like this, and then you're slowly going like this. I think Paul had a picture in mind, and I'm going to finish with this picture, and it's that of an orchestra. There you go. That's a big orchestra. All right. How many in the room have been a part of an orchestra, played an orchestra? Yep, very few. <laughs> Skilled people to be a part of an orchestra. Um, how many have had the opportunity to just go to a live performance of an orchestra? Yeah, there's a lot more hands. See, the beauty of an orchestra is when you, when you go into that room and you, you start off and it's, you know, Beethoven's Ninth or something like this, and you're sitting there and it starts small and then it crescendos and all of the instruments come to life and then they break away. And then there's this part where it's, it's only the violins and then it's only, there's a part where it's only the flutes. It's quite something to behold. And the reverberation in the room when they all start going, they don't all play at the same time, and they create something that is beautiful. Now, I'm told, I'm told that uh, within an orchestra, there is the string section. And the string section think that they're superior to all the others. They are the senior section. Now, they carry the tune in many of the classical works, the strings. They think they're all that. But even within the strings, there are those who think they're even mightier. Go and say it. It's the violins. The violins, they think they're better than everyone. I'm just joking, all right? I'm just, I'm just pulling your leg. But the reality is, 
There's one conductor and many, many instrumentalists. And yet every piece has a part to play in a symphony. Uh, except, you know, I always wonder, where's the triangle player? I actually, I actually wonder to myself, actually, when it comes to an orchestra, you know, the, it's the most important to the least important. Is that right? Am I right, orchestral people? No. I always wonder who plays, anyone play the tuba in here? What's the point of a tuba? Seriously. Who goes to, at school? Oh, I will do the tuba, thanks. Um, the triangle, the timpani. Anyway, you're a, bit, you're a bit quiet this morning. No laughs from you lot. Sooner or later, the instruments have to acknowledge that they all need each other. If the music is to be complete, if the symphony is to be all it was written to be, if an orchestra isn't something that you can experience in this way, you don't understand the place of the Spirit among us. The Spirit raises up the different parts at the time when it's needed. And some of us have never experienced being filled with the Spirit to such a point that we become a conduit for God. You have the right people in the right places, you get diversity. And diversity, not uniformity, is an essential for a healthy church. You've got to have your string section. You've got to have your woodwind. You've got to have your brass. Every different gift in the life of the church is important to its health and to its well-being. And verse 11 says this to us. All of these are the work of the one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. From the beginning to the end, the single emphasis of this entire paragraph is the great diversity of the gifts that the one God distributes and manifests freely through this one Spirit. For the sake of what? The community. The church and the community. I invite the, the band to come and join me as a close. I know I've been naughty this morning because some of you were really desiring, desiring me to unpack all of the different spiritual gifts. And I've purposefully not done that. You know why? Because Paul doesn't. He doesn't open up every last one of those gifts and tells you exactly how each one works. He talks about it throughout the scriptures. And in each different place, you get a little bit of a picture of what the church was doing and how it's working. The church at Corinth must have the right perspective on worship, and so must we. Understand why we were made and why this is available to us. Yes, it is exciting when God's manifest spirit comes among us, gifts his people, and we must eagerly desire to do that. I'm not someone who's trying to create a cessationist kind of worldview here. Uh, a religious worldview. This morning, if you walk away with one thing, it's those last words there, for the sake of community. God wants to see you as a conduit for him. And God has called and equipped his church to be a place of healing, of love and reconciliation, a place of life and giving hope to many through the work of his spirit. Let's lean in to all that he has equipped us for.
Let's stand for prayer. Lord, this morning, for those of us who have been sucked into using spiritual gifts uh, that you give us for personal gain or for not building up the kingdom, we ask your forgiveness. For those of us who have lifted certain sections of your Spirit's work above others, we also ask, Lord, renew us, refocus us. Lord, you're trying to help us understand that worship and the way that we worship is important to you. It isn't about promoting ourselves, but Lord, promoting greater unity and love for the sake of your community. And if we're not doing that, we're doing it wrong. Lord, we realize that the gifts of your spirit are just a foretaste of a future heaven that are a grace to us today and a reminder of your presence and your love through your spirit. We ask this morning, Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds to a different way of seeing you. Allow the spirit to bring transformation and change in us because you want to bless others through us and you want to bring the light of your salvation, the gift of your spirit through us and through our talents which you've placed in us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do a renovating work, a transforming work within us, that we might be open to your movement and to your word more and more as we go into this week. We thank you, Jesus, for your presence and your love. Amen.